the great French gastronome Briat Savarin once said, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. Welcome to Stir Crazy, where I'll be talking food with the most intriguing people who you least expect to talk about food. My guest today is Peter Strzok. Peter is probably one of today's most famous former FBI agents. During his impressive 22-year career, he's been an investigator, lead or senior agent on some of the most prominent investigations in the last few decades. Operation Ghost Stories, which were the investigations into Russian sleeper agents in the U.S., the 9-11 investigation, mid-year exam, uh, of course, of Hillary Clinton's use of private email server, crossfire hurricane, Russian interference in the 2016 elections, the Trump-Russia dossier, and Mueller's investigation into collusion and obstruction. Peter is the man with all of the secrets. He worked his way up to chief of the counter-espionage section, eventually rising to become a deputy assistant director of the counterintelligence division. You'll also remember him testifying in front of the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees on, of all things, the integrity of the FBI, which he did with candor, bravado, and a touch of humorous snark, which, personally, I really appreciated. His first book, a New York Times bestseller, Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, was published in September 2020. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to my kitchen. And thanks for having me in yours. Hey, Jamie. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think that a lot of people are wondering why Peter Strzok is on a mostly food podcast and why I thought to ask him. (laughs) And I will explain it very briefly that I learned who Peter Strzok was like everyone else who follows politics through his testimony in front of the House committees, the whole Mueller affair. (laughs) Let's just go right over it. But I got to know him actually over food. We connected over food very briefly over a year ago. My God, this has been the longest year on the books. <laughs> we were, France was just about to go into confinement, and a lot of places in the States already were locked down. People were raiding supermarkets and hoarding toilet paper and wine, but also, for some reason, baking supplies, yeast and flour. And I thought, well, I'm a food writer. Somebody's got to tell them what to do with all of this stuff. So I decided decided in mid-March to post a recipe for my French apple cake on Twitter, and I asked people that if they made it to take a picture and send me a picture so I knew that they had made it. And I did get a bunch of people tagged me on Twitter, and then one day I got a notification that I had a DM, and I opened it up, and there's a picture of a beautiful French apple cake with the message, you asked us to take a picture if we made your cake, so I made your cake, here's your picture. And I thought, who was sending me this by DM? And I looked again, and it was Peter Strzok. And that kind of really shocked me. (laughs) But since then, and I'm still very curious to know how you came across, how you found the recipe on Twitter, because I never asked you that before. Since then, we have, on and off, talked about food, shared recipes, talked about stuff we were trying for the first time. And I have to say, this past year, between politics and an attempted coup on our government and COVID and confinement and us trying to save our business and murder hornets and locusts and did you know that um, Krakatoa (laughs) erupted in 2020? (laughs) I mean, it's like all of Job's trials and, uh, you know, all the seven tasks of Hercules all in one year. 
so these little food chats in private, which I do with you and, and one or two other people, just are kind of like a little oasis. It's like you forget everything else and just, you know, what are you making today? <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Well, you know, when I was reading your book, which after we bake, I have some questions for you, but, you know, I was reading your book and I'm thinking, okay, this writing this book must have been so therapeutic for you, cathartic. And oddly enough, when I got towards the end of the book, you make that statement that you had expected or other people expected it to be cathartic and it wasn't. I guess it was reliving it all over. But so I'm wondering if you, like all the rest of us, kind of found a little peace in cooking and baking. Yeah, I think for sure. It is something that is familiar, I think, and that all of us, I mean, I remember like probably most people do cooking, my first cooking experiences with my grandparents, um, particularly on my father's side, because they had a huge family, 13 kids. And so one thing that my grandmother would always do is bring in all the grandchildren and she was cooking and particularly baking and give everybody a particular task. And so you were all together, you were participating, you were working towards the common goal of putting food on the table, which itself was, you know, the social experience, preparing for the social experience of eating. So that was, you know, kind of a early memory. And then, you know, as time goes on, I, you know, I did not cook kind of mid early life, didn't cook as much and then kind of certainly returned to it. And that was one of the things during COVID that, you know, we are, you're stuck at home and, you know, you're not going out to eat, you're not taking out or having delivery, at least in the early days. And so, you know, necessarily you were cooking more and cooking all the time. So that was certain on the one hand, the return by necessity to cooking a lot more. And, you know, I think there certainly is a familiarity to the experience of cooking. So that was, you know, one of those things as to how, I, I don't know how I, you showed up somehow in my timeline and it was the photos you have gorgeous, whether you take it or whoever takes pictures of your food is extraordinary because it just looks so good. And I remember seeing something and saying, God, that looks absolutely delicious. And it might've been that apple tart recipe, but, or, or something else. But then, you know, when I looked at it and you were kind of publishing, you know, kind of pandemic recipes, I thought, well, that's a great idea. And, okay. you know, tried that apple tart and it was fabulous, <laughs> but I, I don't remember how or where you popped up in the timeline, but you know, that's one of, we were talking earlier a little bit. One of the few benefits to COVID is I think many of us, you know, a ended up on social media, maybe in a way we wouldn't have otherwise and come across people and in, you know, create these virtual friendships that but for COVID probably would not have occurred. So, you know, there, there are a few things mm -hmm. I'm thankful for in this past year and a half or however long it's been, but certainly that's, you know, meeting folks like you and, and others are, are very much part of that. Yeah, I think we all started using social media in a completely different way this past year, mostly for the better, I hope. A lot of screaming, <laughs> a lot of screaming and yelling, but a lot of good too. So actually, you mentioned before that you learned to kind of prep, do a mise en place, and clean as you go. And in fact, that was my question for you, because in your book, one of the main premises of your book, Compromised, is through all of the investigations that you go from the beginning to the end, you talk constantly through the book about the role and the job, the work of an FBI agent. You really try to get the message across that it's an incredible amount of research. It's attention to details down to the most minute detail where you come across something new and you research it. And very strict adherence to method and a lot of organization. Obviously, everything you collect, you have to organize. And I wanted to know, in fact, if that's how you are in the kitchen. Because to be a successful agent, you have to have a certain kind of character, I assume, which is then reinforced through your years of work. And I just wondered if it translated into how you work in the kitchen. Um, I'm sure it does. I mean, I think most agents tend to be, you know, not quite on the 
OCD territory, but tend to be very <laughs> detail oriented and the job encourages that. And, you know, the selection process does. I mean, there are testing and psychological exam aspects to that. And I think it is designed from the outset to identify people who are already at a point where you are detail oriented and process oriented and pay attention to detail. And then the work accentuates that. I mean, it's kind of like I was always struck when my kids were really little. And I'm sure, you know, as a parent, you've experienced this too, that just the wonder that they are seeing everything around them and the kids see and observe in a way that as you grow, you tend to stop observing in the mm. same way. And you know, you'll be driving along and a kid will point, look out the window and they'll point something out and you're like, oh my God, I didn't even notice that. And, but that sort of relearning coming back to try and find that same conscious paying attention to the detail is part of the work and and i'm sure it translates to my cooking i'm i am not i mean again and i don't want to generalize for every fbi agent for sure but <laughs> i am not good enough there are people that are you know great cooks and can kind of go on the fly and they measure by eye and they taste and they say oh, okay it's missing this general thing and they can kind of go to the spice cabinet or the fridge or whatever it is and pick out that ingredient and put it in just knowing what the right thing is i'm not i'm not that good and i don't know that I ever will be but for me then that it, it is a much more successful thing to kind of, you know, have the recipe, read it twice, get out all the ingredients, measure them out, you know, and particularly doing it ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, one, make sure that it's right, but it makes it much less kind of stressful as you go. If you're combining ingredients and you don't have to sit there and you're like, oh, shoot, I forgot the salt. Well, if the salt's already there in a little cup, you're going to dump it in there and not forget it. So, yeah, I suspect my cooking style is very much precise and, you know, reproducible. <laughs> But well, again, I, that's I, that's just because lacking the, you know, I don't have that sheer, you know, talent. And some of it's talent through experience, right? I mean, if you cook enough, you understand what complements Oh, but wait, because, right, but there's a difference between cooking and baking. I am not comfortable cooking at all because I can't do that. I can't taste something. When I decide to cook, I will call my husband in at the end and say, correct the flavor for me because he can do it. Whereas he can't bake to save his life, and I can so it's completely different. And I think baking, you do rely on all the preparation and understanding how things work. But that's, that's also really why interesting. In my mind, you know, again, because I'm a novice and an outsider, I kind of lump them all in like cooking is baking is soup making is, you know, whatever. So are you saying that cooking is a more kind of go by the seat of your pants and experience an artistic sort of random walk where baking is a more precise process driven it's when you can start cooking something and you can change it as it goes whereas when you're baking something you can make changes to a recipe but you have to do it before you start you can't do it in the course of yeah, yeah you can add vanilla but the science is different i think there's a certain science to baking that you don't get with cooking which cooks out there listening are probably going to scream but it's hmm. different and i think you have to adhere more to the science when you're baking or it just won't work out i mean a cake won't rise or a bread won't rise whereas i think if you're making a stew and you don't put in the potatoes or you decide to make it vegetarian one day and with meat another, it's still going to taste good if you're good. Right. That's really interesting and makes sense. I had not thought about it in that but way. But I think that's why I also like to do everything with my hands. I don't use a food processor or a blender or anything else because that's why I get good at something because I can tell when it's supposed to feel like it's, you know, when it's feeling right and when it's not. Yeah. And that's really interesting because when I think about it, for the most part, I will make 
I mean, whether it's grilling a steak or searing salmon or making a stew or cooking is, I don't want to say eat, well, it is easier. But I'll go to the bakery for bread. Like, I mean, I would never be able to, I don't have the equipment to get a good sourdough loaf. You know, if I need pastry, I'll go buy frozen pastry. (laughs) That, the idea of making that, the complexity of that. So is there in the cooking world, is there kind of a accepted hierarchy of difficulty? Like if you asked a thousand chefs, they'd say, oh God, no, the baker's is the hardest job or no, this is the hardest or or is that everybody's going to have a different answer? Probably everybody's going to have a different answer because like I said, I mean, my husband, I had left focaccia dough in the refrigerator and he thought, oh, it's easy. You take it out, you roll it out, you brush it with olive oil, salt and pepper and you put it in the oven and it didn't come out right. So, you know, I just think they're so different and I know there are a lot of people that can do both Mm. perfectly well, but there are some people that are just, I think, better. Well, I, I can say there are some people that are better at one and understand it better than the other because I'm one of those people. Right, right. Because I can do, you know, I say I want to teach myself how to make puff pastry or macaron or whatever, and I study it and I research it, and then I try it once and I try it twice, and it's good because I understand it. Right. But if I have to make a tagine, I go to my husband in a panic <laughs> and say, help me, how do I do this? And it's just basically, you know, meat and vegetables. But Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I was curious about that because it's just something that I was reading your book. I was laughing to myself thinking, oh, I, you know, he must be somebody that does mise en place in the kitchen and cleans as he goes. Yeah. <laughs> That's, no, exactly. I mean, I do it because, for a couple of reasons. One, I do it because it's helpful. And it aids my process. But two, there's also a very kind of innately comfortable aspect to that of laying everything out, of knowing where it is, of having it in the same place every time. Mm. And if I'm prepping and the wet items are in the same place every time, or if I'm putting the eggs out on the counter, they're always generally going to be in the same place. There is that, one, it's efficient and helps. But two, for sure, I'm certain there's probably some subconscious comfort of doing it in the same way. And what's interesting, I mean, I I was reading something else about like, you know, with aging and how patterns can actually become counterproductive later in life that you want to introduce variety because, you know, particularly as your brain gets much older, having variety and difference is far more important to sort of brain health and, you know, some the dementia and other just loss of function that too strict a adherence to patterns isn't huh. great for your brain. And so building in variety isn't important. Now, I mean, I think we're decades off from that really being an issue, but it was just an interesting <laughs> idea that, I hope. you know, I very much am a very much a creature of habit and that, you know, the idea of at some point that that habitual behavior can be counterproductive, that, that variety and spontaneity and randomness oh, but are really then, important but parts you could to, actually parts to but life. You, but you could actually say you're acquiring technique. But then you would have to apply it to new things. So you made scones today. You've made, you know, more complicated things before. You've made cannelé, uh, which I'm still terrified to try and make. You know, in the wax, that's there a lot of fun. Cooking with, I'd never cooked with wax before, and it's a pain to clean up. That's just, again, going to that sort of like (laughs) idea of neatness and order. And for your listeners, that's essentially they're a French little pastry that you Mm -hmm. bake in these tin molds, which you brush with beeswax on the outside, which creates a really fine, crispy shell, which keeps them really crispy on the outside and moist on the inside, almost like a custard. But you've got to melt the wax, and I've never done it before, and melting wax sticks to everything, and your brush gets all gummed up. It's just a nasty 
they taste delicious, so you've got to try. There was a place that sold them at the market when we lived in Nantes, and they were like nine bucks a piece, and I'll, now I understand why. They're really right. expensive. And that's, well, and that's cheap. I mean, I was looking online. What's the kind of no, no, standard no, no, no. for the... No, 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 no. But I don't like, I couldn't afford those. Mofia. I mean, those... No, no, no. I don't... Uh, no, I'm not talking about the copper molds. I'm talking about the cakes. Oh, 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 oh. They're oh, really wow. expensive. That's really expensive. Oh, that's They're great. really expensive. Oh, yeah, no, the copper molds are really expensive. They're ridiculous. Yeah, there's a big kitchen supply store that opened up a few years ago, and I went before COVID, and they had them, and they sell them in, like, packs of three for, like, well, I think they were, like, 25 or 30 bucks, so, which is no, probably not, not that bad. bad. But, but again, it's one a... of those indulgences. It's like, you know, escargot shell holders. It's like, okay, well, this is, you know, <laughs> extraordinarily functional and necessary, but on the other hand, if you're doing it, you know, twice a year, you know, does it justify the cost or not? But Yes, it does. I, every time, <laughs> every time I walk into like uh, Sir Latave or, uh, you know, Williams-Sonoma, some of the high-end cooking stores, and you look at all these little precise $20 cooking tools that you'll use once every two years. It's like, oh, God. You know, I like know. Which is why having an addiction to things like wooden spoons and metal whisks is actually cheap. Right. <laughs> it's actually more practical because you could buy them at the grocery store, mm-hmm. which is what I do. So go back to your growing up. So I want to hear more about this mm-hmm. grandmother. So you are from Struck is Polish. So how many generations back did they come over? So they came over. So my father's side is Polish and my mother's side is Irish and Scottish. The Polish side of the family came over, I want to say my great-great-grandfather. Well, no, because my grandfather was the first, I think he was born in the U.S. So his father was born in Poland. So my great-grandfather immigrated. So whatever generationally, time-wise that makes. Okay. So you knew your grandparents who had been raised by people who grew up in the old country. That's right. right. So, you know, I do a lot of not only food research, but a lot of genealogical research, too. And I've come to the conclusion that when people immigrate to a new country, they bring two things with them, their religion and their culinary traditions. And with religion and culinary traditions, there's a lot of crossover because what really ends up staying once they Americanize a little bit are the food traditions that go with holidays and festivals and religious ceremonies and stuff. So what did you grow up with as far as food traditions in your house? So that was very much on my father's side because they were Catholic and there was very much exactly that. There was a strong religious identity. I mean, they were in Wisconsin and dairy country. And so there were a lot of Poles there. I mean, there were some Germans as well, but, you know, going to Mass and things, that, that was largely a Catholic congregation. I mean, when we'd go visit and go to Mass, you know, when particularly, and they moved to a bigger city, so that was much more sort of ethnically and religiously diverse, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember certainly all the Polish foods from, you know, kishka, which is a blood sausage, mm-hmm. to kielbasa, to pierogies, to, you know, mm. just and your point that there would be things that, particularly at religious holidays, at Easter, you know, we make this, at Christmas we make this and they're holidays but they're religious holidays and so that that was wrapped up now interestingly my my mother's family was Protestant and down in North Carolina and cooking was important but it didn't have that same association with religion I remember you know again sitting with my other with my granny with my maternal grandmother and you know the people would come by selling vegetables Mm. you know kind of door to door and buying like snap peas and sitting there and you know taking out the strands of the of the string beans and snapping them and you know cleaning the corn on 
the cob. And again, it was that sort of communal cooking experience, but it was not tethered to religion in the same way it was on my father's side. I mean, certainly, you know, you celebrate Easter, Christmas, or religious holidays, but there didn't seem to be the same feeling of Mm. attachment of the food to the religious event. But they were in the U.S. longer. I mean, not, you know, going way, way back, but certainly several generations longer. So perhaps that's more attenuated with time on that side. But it's funny because I do have food memories with both of my grandmothers. Mm. And so when you were young, your father moved you to, you lived in Iran, you lived in Burkina Faso in Africa, you lived in Haiti. From what age to what age? I mean, that was your childhood and youth. Yeah, that's right. So he was a career army officer. Um, I was born when he was still in the army. We moved all over the place and frequently, I mean, all around the U.S. And then Mm. we lived in Iran twice um, when I was three and four years old. And then returning again when... I was eight and nine years old, and then from there to West Africa, from West Africa to Haiti. So we moved around quite a bit, and I mean, it sounds unusual, but it was my kind of the only experience I knew, so it felt usual, but it certainly had a lot of... uh, But when you moved, I mean, we'd moved our kids to Italy. It's not the same thing. Your father took you to countries where there was a, a safety in an expat bubble. Did you experience the communities? Did you experience the food? Did you go into people's homes? It's a great question because I think depending on both the country and the nature of the job, you can tend to be more in the expat community, both either specific to the United States and the American community Mm -hmm. versus the international community. I mean, you know, the first time he was in the Department of Defense in Iran, and there were a ton of American advisors working with the Iranians at the time. So I think it's a different experience if you were a State Department child and you're part of the embassy community Mm. and we were not that so certainly you know not in around the second time he was working for bell helicopter and in west africa and haiti he was doing development work so that was very much you know was part of an expat community my recollection of west africa and haiti for sure was a lot of interaction outside of that expat community i mean working and you know socializing and spending time with either Burkinabe or Haitian colleagues. And then in addition to, you know, the international school, which taught in English. So that wasn't just Americans. You had, you know, members of the international development community or members of the, you know, the English speaking diplomatic corps who were all Mm-hmm. part of that. So even years later as an adult, did you go back and interest yourself in the culture and the food? Do you do any kind of Some, cooking? Some, for sure. And it's interesting, like Persian food is amazing and I love mm-hmm. it to this day. You know, I'll cook and dabble. I, I, I should do that much more than I have. But it's interesting how much the role of food is so critical to every cultural experience that I've ever been in. I mean, it you know, obviously it's necessary for life and, and the way societies and cultures grow up around the aspect of how you interact with food. It's very much woven in to the social fabric in in slightly different ways. But it is universally, in my experience, it is a social event. I mean, it's not something done out of utility. You know, it might be if you're running in the middle of working to grab lunch, but there is always the idea of a social experience around a meal that you come together and the idea of abundance. And, you know, certainly got the Persians. I remember just Hmm. tables full of food, like overflowing with food. Like, you know, there are eight people here for this and there's no way 20 people would eat all of it. And, you know, and then seeing that again here and you lay it out and, you know, you go, you visit, you know, somebody's home. But that idea of the, the necessity of the abundance, that being a good host means that there is more here than you could ever eat or want, that that is how you demonstrate hospitality and towards you found somebody who's coming into your and home. And it's okay. And, um, and you found sorry, that in anywhere you went. 
Right, and then of course the 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 hard part was you know when you go to the developing world okay. like the uh, the conditions of sorry the dog is very excited about the stuff in the oven <laughs> <laughs> the stuff in the de- okay, in minus, the developing minus. world you still this still happens but you know it's it's a big deal if you're having somebody over and you're like oh god you know we've got both mutton and chicken here mm. and where's the dog can we see the dog yeah hold on well, he, if I get him he enjoys playing there he goes he's oh. having a fun time feeling like <laughs> there he is I don't know if you can see him. I can, I can. (laughs) (laughs) He's a little, uh, yeah, he gets very excited. Extremely happy. Yeah, and that's, uh, (laughs) 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 it's a rainy day, so he has not been able to go out like he normally does. Oh. Full of uh, of energy. Yeah, we have thunder, so we have one of the cats that's like hysterical, that needs mom. Oh, it's yeah, not a, a King Charles. Yep, oh, he look. is. Yep, yep, he's a Cavalier. So he's he's settled down because he's understood that there is food coming out of the oven. And he's, oh, if nothing. yeah, because I, I have actually a non-food question about your book, mm-hmm. which is, you know, there are so many people that wrote books about Trump, the administration, the Russia thing, everything in the past five years. And I think all of them made best. Oh, I'm waiting for your reaction. I'm just going to... Oh. Fabulous. Delicious. So, you know, there were all these slews of books and they all made the bestseller list because, in my opinion, for two reasons. First of all, I think we're just all voyeurs. I mean, I think that we were just so, so mesmerized. I just really wanted to watch, you know, dumpster fire, train wreck of what was going on. And... You know, we live in a big... I mean, life has become a reality TV show. So I think that's one reason people sucked up all these books. I think the other reason is that I think that we all hoped that in one of these books, the author would give definitive evidence of a crime. Here it is. This whole administration is guilty of this crime. They're all going to jail. (laughs) I think that's another reason people wanted to read these books. So actually, I bought yours after I got to know you because when I get to know people and they've written books, I like to read the books. And I have a guilty admission in that I was probably hoping also for, you know, to kind of just deep dive into all the all the details of the whole Trump-Russia thing. It didn't dawn on me that, you know, a lot was classified and you couldn't write about it, but you know, you buy these books and you hope it. So I opened to chapter one and find us in the early 2000s in Boston with the ghost stories, which I had never seen the Americans. And I only watched the Americans in the past couple of weeks after I read your book to find out more about it. And I have to say, I don't know if you've watched the Americans, but the main FBI character, Stan Beeman, did you watch it? I haven't. I've never, I've never watched the Americans. Okay. I just found him to be like an incredibly stupid human being. <laughs> and, and I just wanted to ask you, because it's like this guy shows up at a bar or a party or wherever he is, and he just kind of blurts out, I'm an FBI agent in counterintelligence, and I'm searching for Russian secret agents. I'm like, what? Why is he going around telling everybody this? But, you know, I've read so many books, usually biographies. I've read so many books where the meat of the information is there's just not enough for the author to fill up a whole book. So they put in a lot of filler, a lot of other, you know, interesting tidbits. But, and so I had this brief, brief kind of thing crossed my mind where when I started your book that, oh God, we're not going to get all the Trump Russia stuff. He's going to tell us about his whole entire career. But I kept reading. I've told you this before. You are an incredibly mesmerizing storyteller. You're a great storyteller. It was one of the best 
written books that I've read of all the ones I've read in the past five years. I just got caught up in it. A lot of the stuff I didn't know. So it went from, you know, the 2000s ghost stories, which was, you know, Russians infiltrating our everyday life, our suburbs, through all the other investigations you worked on, and then the Russians kind of hacking into the emails of, you know, Clinton's emails and DNC and taking over social media and eventually infiltrating the White House, which personally I believe they did. Plus the whole FBI thing about you explaining how it worked, all of these different investigations. And it kind of dawned on me in the middle of the book that it all connected, that what started with these sleeper agents, these Russians kind of becoming American citizens to spy, ended up 20 years later in the White House basically. And I was just wondering if this was one thing you were trying to say, if that's what you think, that it's just something that's evolved over the past 20, 30, how many years, and it kind of finally almost succeeded. Does that make Um, sense? It it does. And I'm glad you found it worthwhile in that way. I was trying to write a book that was more than just a, something that you could pick up in 20 years or some, you know, master's student who was, of course, was studying. I'm convinced we are going to look at the 2016 elections and the immediate post period of that the same way, like if you're in school and you, you know, study the Cuban Missile Mm. Crisis, just in terms of what happened because it was a notable point in history, the various organizational behaviors, and that it's going to be, whether the Cuban Missile Crisis or Watergate or whatever it is, that's going to be something that, you know, students in 20, 40, 100 years are going to look back at this time period. And I very much wanted to write it, one, to have kind of an accurate, authoritative accounting of what at least we were doing in the FBI and seeing. And the other thing was counterintelligence is a very misunderstood field. I mean, to the extent people, if you think of spying, you think of James Bond or you think of the Americans, but there isn't typically a lot written or discussed about counterintelligence. So I wanted to use the book also as an opportunity to say, hey, yeah, you know, I'm going to talk about Trump and Russia, but in order to do that, you really need to understand what counterintelligence work is. And that means you really need to understand, you know, what intelligence is and how the Russians Mm. go about doing it and how the U.S. goes about doing it. I didn't write it for an inside the Washington, D.C. Beltway crowd. I wrote it for somebody who's interested, who, you know, is curious and smart, but doesn't necessarily know the first thing about the U.S. government, could pick it up and get an understanding of what it was in a smart way, Um, not, you know, insulting anybody's intelligence, and then use that and pivot to telling the story of Trump and Russia. And I think part of it was, you know, it is a continuum. And if you look at what the early things we did with the Russian illegals, you know, that was very, in some ways, an older pattern of traditional intelligence work by the Russians. And what really changed, and we saw that in 16, and it continues today, is just the way social media and the internet have changed the business of intelligence and counterintelligence and what disinformation looks like and what propaganda looks like. And that, you know, really, it it has changed. It played a significant role in 16. And we haven't figured that out yet as a nation. I mean, we're still trying to figure out what, you know, content moderation should look like, whether you're a private entity like Facebook or whether you're, you know, combating something that a foreign nation is doing and where the right lines are to control that and check that and moderate that are, are really still difficult issues. So, yeah, and to put all that down in a, you know, accessible 300 pages. I mean, I wanted mm-hmm. to write about China as well, and we just ran out of time and space. And, you know, talking to the editor, he's like, look, you know, I think we've got a nice arc here that kind of weaves together the various elements and putting in more would get to be too much. So 
it ended up. Uh, well, that's you know. true because it starts with Russia and ends with Russia. Right. And somebody like me who doesn't know a lot about it, except what I see on social media, is it connected it all to me. Good. Yeah, China would have confused me because I'm still very confused about, I pay less attention to China, which maybe I shouldn't, only because there's so much of all the other stuff still going on, which is another question is it's not over and where does it go from here? I mean, I've become very pessimistic about the whole situation in the past year. And I mean, we're still in it. Yeah, very much. And I don't think we'll ever be out of it. You know, what disturbs me the most right now and which I find unbelievable is the number of, there's some recent survey of Republicans of who do you trust more, Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden and Putin, you know, Putin came out ahead. And that's, I mean, you know, my, my I grew up in a Republican family. I mean, Catholic, Polish, dairy farm, Wisconsin neighborhood (laughs) is, you know, it's baseball, apple pie, the 4th of July and, you know, the, the United States of America. And I mean, again, they're democratic stronghold because the labor movement. But for a long time, when you think of, you know, strong national defense and, you know, promoting democracy abroad, those are very, I mean, they're American values, but there are certainly values that the Republican Party traditionally associated itself with. And the idea that you'd have anybody in the Republican Party, I mean, you know, the godless communists were... The, the the devil <laughs> and the enemy. And now you've got people who are, you know, saying, yeah, I believe Putin more than I... Be-. And Trump issued some statement, of you know, right before Biden met Putin in, in Europe saying, well, you know, I, I still, you know, believe Putin essentially more than I believe the U.S. intelligence community. And that's crazy. And I don't know how mm-hmm. we get past that where people are putting their party and their personal ambitions ahead of their country. They're willing to take information they know is coming from a, not only a foreign nation, but a hostile foreign nation and use that to stay in power, to gain power. And the fact that that could be approaching normal is really deeply disappointing to me. And I don't know how you back away from that. There seems to be, at least on the China side, there isn't that same willingness to kind of cozy up. There's, you know, and you saw that in the last administration that, you know, kind of trying to make China out to be the absolute devil, which it's not. But I do think if you look at the strategic interests of the United States in 10 20 and more years, China is a far more significant threat to our national security than Russia is. Russia is a one-trick pony. Mm. I mean, they have oil and energy reserves. And you take that away, and it's not clear that they're, you know, approaching second world nation status, but for, you know, thousands of nuclear warheads. China, on the other hand, is a <laughs> dynamo. I mean, they're a Which is competitor. <laughs> They're, yeah, that's a cold comfort, right? Um, But, you know, China is trying across the board. They have a just a dynamo of an economy that is dominating the global scene. They are reaching out increasingly to markets around the world that are pushing us and Western nations out and, you know, pose much more of a threat to the global strategic order as a still rising power. And you look at everything they're doing and pushing out their influence across the South China Sea and their near abroad and what that means for Taiwan, what that means for, you know, everything from their, you know, neighbors like Southeast Asia and Vietnam and Cambodia, what it means for India and the kind of border disputes between Mm. India and China. And they're going after American technology. It's not just defense technology. It's the energy sector and big pharma and manufacturing. And they are aggressively targeting the U.S. where they need to in order to make China the preeminent global power across the board. And so we're all focused on Russia, but, you know, from a counterintelligence perspective, from a national security perspective, China's going to be a much bigger issue for the rest of our lives than, than Russia. So is it possible that all of those Republicans keep 
Well, this is a twist, plot twist. <laughs> if they keep us focused on Russia, knowing that China is the real danger, is that a crazy theory that they're forcing us to stay focused on Russia? It's kind of like, you know, whenever something bad came out about the administration or something, you know, Trump would do something stupid or say something stupid and they would, you know, say, look, squirrel. And we would all look at the stupid stuff while all the criminal stuff was being unnoticed. Are they doing this with Russia and China? I don't know if it's anything that clever or sophisticated. <laughs> I think they just see, I mean, I th think, look, it's going to be whatever. Unfortunately, what you're seeing is just the elevation of power ahead of any sort of ideal or sense of patriotism. And if China suddenly became a strong source of funding or advantage, you would see a change in tone. And I think it just so happens that particularly like look at Russia, I mean, they were providing disinformation through Ukraine about what Hunter may or may not have been doing in Burismo, you know, may or may not have been doing, but it was very advantageous to have Rudy out there sniffing it out and trying to throw out this nonsense into the public debate because Trump thought it would be advantageous mm -hmm. to him in the, in the election, even if it was Russian disinformation. And it was. China wasn't doing that. You know, you see China, sure, China was doing some things and the propaganda disinformation sphere, but that was much more their own immediate interest. You know, COVID didn't come from China. That's nasty American propaganda. China isn't going after and interning the Uyghurs. That's nasty American propaganda. China isn't some, you know, regional hegemon crushing everybody in its sphere of influence. That's evil American propaganda. So it's not, they weren't reaching into American domestic affairs like Russia did. But, I mean, they're certainly active, but they're active in their hmm. uh, things of interest to them. But I don't think, to your original question, I don't think it's a deliberate, clever, and who knows? I mean, right. I could be completely wrong. I think it's having that effect. I think we're talking still too much about Russia and not enough about China. But we have to talk about Russia because they're doing really bad things. And we have an entire political party that's cozying up and aligning themselves with them. So we have to talk about it because of their actions and behavior. Yeah, it's impossible to understand. I mean, there's people that I went through elementary, junior high, high school with, college that believe every conspiracy theory and you think how, how how did I come out this way and they come out that way when we had the exact same education our dads worked together at NASA I mean it's like yeah kind of exhausting it is and it becomes something almost like a cult where you have to get to the point of actually deprogramming to get away from it mm -hmm. and how you I mean one it's when you start going down that rabbit hole and you start believing it to consider the alternative which happens to be the truth carries such a price of personal embarrassment and shame that god i can't be wrong because if i'm wrong I, yeah god how stupid am i so and i'm not stupid i don't think and if i am that's so shameful and i don't even want to think about it so of course i'm not wrong i mean there's always been this conspiracy fringe in most countries but i mean certainly you know you go back in the, you know, the illuminati or the knights templar and all these silly things but in the u.s you had you know just crazy mm. little fringe theories going back as far as we've been a nation but you'd have to find it in small groups and meetings or pamphlets now you can just log on and anybody can sit there and kind of come together mm. in the you know unifying crazy conspiracy theory land online that before you'd have to kind of seek it out and you don't have to seek it out anymore it's just immediately in available. the middle of the last four years i watched all the president's men for the very first time and the thing that astounded me the most was the lack of cell phones the lack of internet and you know the reporters would go and knock on somebody's secretary's door and say can we talk to you about something and she had no idea what they were talking about and nobody had called her real quick and said don't answer your door they're on their way and it was it was incredibly strange it was really strange to see that
Yeah, I mean, everything has changed. And it's funny, I've realized after, you know, kind of doing the book tour and talking to a lot of journalists, and you realize the work that journalists do is so similar to the work that agents do investigating. I mean, it's investigating is investigating is investigating. It's the same thing. You're going out and you're trying to find the truth, either, you know, for your newspaper article or for your investigation. So it's the same, in many ways, the same process, the same way of thinking about things. But you're right. When I started in the Bureau, and I mean, yeah, we had LexisNexis, but if you had somebody and you're trying to figure out, okay, where do they live? Where did they live before that? It would take you a week. And you'd have to go out and you pull out your paper map and, you know, driving all over Somerville or Cambridge or wherever the case may be. But now you can do that in a day. I mean, you can sit down, Google Maps, you can get a street view. I've got a picture of your house. I've got a picture of the side of your house and the back of your house. I can sit there and go and easily come up with, you know, your current address, your past two addresses, who lives with you. And it's just two hours. I can do what took a week when I started in the FBI. Well, you know, what's terrifying is when you say, hmm, I wonder what happened to so-and-so that I went to college with. And you Google them, and there's absolutely no trace of them on internet at all. They're not on social media. They have no website. They have. They're not on LinkedIn. And you know they're alive. And you're thinking, how did they get through so many decades with no online trace of them at all? Yeah. And that's becomes yeah. and it's, the weird it's thing. Hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you actively have to try that now. And the only people who are actively trying, in my experience now, are either people who are government employees or people who are, you know, Luddites and believe that, you know, I need to wear a tinfoil hat because they're they're tracking me with the satellites. But you can't. I mean, we tried, you know, one, you know, they discouraged, you know, the Bureau lets you have social media accounts. But our practice was always just not to have it. Like to this day, I still don't have a Facebook account. I got a Twitter account just with the book coming out to interact with Mm -hmm. social media that way. But kids are you know, the school will be like the elementary school. Hey, we've got a, a Facebook page where we're going to post these updates or details about the film trip we're going to put. So you have to right. opt in. You know, you can be, you can work extra hard and create like sort of an anonymous account, but then some of it is, okay, the school doesn't want just random members of the public logging into a social media site because you don't want child predators. So you have to prove that you're a parent. And so then you're associating the account with yourself. So it's just, it's almost inescapable now. And so it just is. I, I don't think we get back to a state, you know, we'll see if the U.S. ever gets to, you know, the whole idea in the EU of the sort right. of the right to be forgotten and data privacy and, you know, the GDPR, the sort of data protection laws. If the U.S. ever gets there, I think there's a lot of merit to that. But I also think there's a ton of money in commercial interests and having all that information out there. So I'm not hopeful that the U.S. ever gets to that place. Well, I mentioned Twitter to either my husband or somebody else in France, and they laughed at me and said, like, you know, the a number of people in France who are on Twitter is so small, whereas in the States, I think it's like the majority of the people. So maybe because in the States, we move around so much and we live so far from people we know. And in France, you, you know, basically are next door to the people you always live next door yeah. to. So I don't know. I mean, because people here, I talk about Twitter and they look at me like I'm kind of strange. I'm the foreigner. I'm the American. So it's... Yeah, it's definitely, you know, I've had people close to me saying, look, just take a break. And the benefits of that just not going on for a week. I mean, you realize you don't miss it. And then, of course, you fall in and you'll two hours later, you come up from scrolling through. (laughs) I think I'm curious to see what happens. I mean, there was a a symbiotic sort of COVID isolation coupled with social media. They, They reinforced each other, right? So you're not going out with friends. You're not meeting on the block or walking around the neighborhood and talking. So the positive aspects was, you know, like this, like you 
create new social relationships online. The downside is all the dreck that comes along with that and the, you know, the flamethrowing and the idiots and the trolling and all the Mm -hmm. stuff that, you know, comes along that is, is coupled with that. So, you know, I expect probably there will be a decrease in, you know, certainly I know for me there will be in in social media, but I'm curious kind of across the board as people return to normal that, you know, the amount of time on social media will drop. Maybe not though. I don't, I don't know. Well, we in the tourism industry have been wondering if tourism is going to change once people have the chance to move around again. Will they just go back to their old habits or will something have happened that they change? And it's the same with social media. It's impossible to know because you can reason either side. You know, people have realized that. But then there's also the, you know, everybody really falls back into old habits because it's so easy. So it's impossible to know. I got to think tourism is going to be safe. I mean, there's such a pent-up demand. There is a natural, I want to go someplace. I want to see someplace different. I want to experience something new. I've got to think that remains constant. I mean, maybe not. You know, I don't know. I don't know that it's enough to have made us permanently less social or less willing to travel but at the end of the day i think people will return it i mean there's a reason we did it before and i think that's the perceived you know utility and and pleasure of it that hasn't changed once we and just how long it takes to get there i don't know so we'll see you in france in 2021 or 2022 (laughs) (laughs) probably 22 but yeah Now yeah, that Americans, absolutely. well, now that Americans can come, but French can't go to the states, so it's a one-way That's, street for the moment. Is that because of the U.S. saying yeah. they can't come? I think Joe Biden wants to. What I read from the article today is that Joe Biden wants to make sure, which is smart, actually, wants to make sure that enough Americans are vaccinated and that the Delta variant, well, the other variants aren't going to take off, which is what our worry is in France. Basically, our worry, not, I don't know who else worries about it, is opening up going to last or is it going to have been a mistake like last summer? So who knows? Hmm. We'll find out. Hmm. Yeah, in well, maybe 22. So we'll see. Yeah. So I've taken up your morning yeah. and taught you how to fun. make scones. I'm, which I continue to eat and it's delicious all the way to the... Uh, Good. The nice part about getting towards the end is you get more of the crunch coming together. They're Sugar. lovely. So. <laughs> so there's so much more to talk about, obviously. I hope you'll come back again and we'll make something more complicated like puff pastry or <laughs> cream puffs. Um or or I like jam. having I like having success at the end of the uh, at the end of the experience. I worry when we get to that and I'm staring at a plate of slop isn't the same, bit, isn't the same happy, uh, Am, happy feeling. Uh, no, well, then you're just kind of <laughs> insulting the teacher saying, I will make you <laughs> create a, a plate of slop. <laughs> and one day I will get you to make jam. I know it's intimidating for you, but you made canelé de Bordeaux, which I'm still terrified to make. So it's, you know, what do they well, say? Half of one. Six of one. Yeah, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was great. I had a great time. Great. And um, so now we have scones. And I will look forward to getting photos of your next cooking adventure. Absolutely. And Absolutely. making, and you have now a whole cookbook you have to cook your way through. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <Okay>. So, <laughs> of course. Of course. thank you so great. much for being here. And we'll see you soon. Now that you've enjoyed the Stir Crazy podcast, head over to the Stir Crazy YouTube channel to watch me and Peter bake scones. You are not going to want to miss that.
Make sure you subscribe to both the podcast and the YouTube channel so you never miss a single Stir Crazy episode. Sounds great. Good. Talk to you soon. Okay. 